Second Samuel chapter 21, war crimes and war. That's what's in this chapter. It's not a very happy chapter. Uh, the, the beginning part is pretty tough. Anyway, these last four chapters in Second Samuel really form an epilogue to the life of David as he is king. Uh, it's not in chronological order, these last few chapters, and so we won't pay too much attention as to when these things took place, except to say they took place after he became king over both the north and uh, southern part, southern kingdom of Israel. So we look now at verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of Yahweh, and Yahweh answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Well, uh, Likely, again, this, this one is probably early in his reign over both kingdoms, where it says, and David inquired of the Lord, well, isn't that characteristic of David? Uh, how many times we read about him going to the Lord whenever the pressure was on. This is the same David that will later dance before the ark with all of his might. Now, of course, in ancient Israel, a famine would uh, indicate God's displeasure, Yahweh's displeasure with the people. And initially, David doesn't suspect, it appears, that he doesn't suspect it's a famine, but this is life. You know, sometimes you just get uh, some dry seasons. But by the third year, he's beginning to realize, you know, this, this is something that is spiritual. And he goes to God, and uh, in realize, re realizing that this is, there's more to it than just the natural occurrence. And the Lord answers him, as it says here in verse 1. And says, it's because of Saul. And we say in response, it figures. Knowing how rotten that man was, uh, he's still, he being dead, is still causing problems. William McDonald says, time does not dull God's memory or his sense of justice. And here, after long, sometime, years after Saul's death, God is uh, addressing this. And his choice, God, that is, of slowly revealing his displeasure is um, something that uh, no doubt God was using in the lives of individuals as the pressure was on. It wasn't only, well, it was about Saul's evil deeds, but you know, when the pressure was on, there were people that would turn to the Lord, and so there would be secondary purses, uh, purposes that would come out of this delay uh, in finding out what was going on. Job didn't find out what the whole story was till it was over. Talk about a delay. Uh, Job wrote, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Job 10 verse 2. Well, God didn't just say, okay. Not right away. It was a lot more hurt involved before finally he is... Um, gains audience with God over the troubles in his life and what it was all about. Uh, at some point in Saul's reign, he attempted to commit genocide to wipe out the Gibeonites, and we'll be talking about that quite a bit. The story goes back to Joshua chapter 9. Uh, God is very serious about covenants, to make a, take an oath, a promise with God, Involved, uh, he doesn't uh, just dismiss it when it is violated. 
Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to Yahweh or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And the Gibeonites, fighting for their lives, they deceived Joshua, but Joshua uh, missed uh, uh, the the right steps that he should have taken to inquire of the Lord. He just took it for granted, looking at the uh, physical evidence before him, which was forged. Uh, and uh, he, he enters into an oath, and, and God says, well, you gave them your word, even though uh, they're supposed to be purged out of the land. You, you messed this one up, Joshua. And uh, so Joshua made them uh, servants who would chop wood for the temple and whatever needs they may have had, and uh, outside of personal needs, and fetch water. This statement here in verse 1 his bloodthirsty house, because he has killed the Gibeonites. It's literally his house of bloodshed. It's pretty intense. Now, Saul was a serial killer. He was just homicidal. And if, if he, he couldn't kill you with the spear, he'd get somebody else who, who would. Uh, this particular event is not recorded in the Scripture. It is alluded to, Second Samuel 4, verse 3, because the Barathites fled to Gitaim, and have been sojourners there until this day. Well, they were Gibeonites, and why did they flee? Because, you know, the timeline would suggest strongly that it was Saul, who was a king shortly before uh, that time period. Well, the slaughter against these Gibeonites um, was not perpetuated by Saul alone. He didn't single-handedly ride into town and start slaughtering Gibeonites. He, of course, uh, used Benjamites to do it. And one reason why it may not be recorded is because he covered it up. He didn't want the other tribes to know what he was doing because they would have, well, they should have been. Um, uh, they would have objected more than likely. So no further information and uh, not surprised by the omission in history. But even though men did not record it, God did, and now it's coming up. And it's going to be pretty intense. Verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. So David, he asks God what's going on, and God tells him, and he, then he takes the necessary steps to come up with the solution. He uh, summons the Gibeonite leaders to come to his court, and they do, and they begin to deal with the problem. Uh, Israel, as a nation, is, is accountable directly to God. And it, where it says in verse 2, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, uh, they were resident Canaanites. They were in the land when the Jews crossed over Jordan from the wilderness and began their conquest of the promised land. Uh, this is the only people that uh, were given a pass because of the uh, shrewdness on their part. Uh, it was not a business transaction that they entered into. They, they were... It was life and, or death with them, and they were saying, well, we're not Canaanites. We're from outside of Canaan, and the, the commandment from God on you, Joshua, is to purge the land of the Canaanites. Well, 
We're outsiders, and look at our moldy bread and our worn-out shoes. We've been traveling around, and Joshua looked at it and said, okay, the, you must be telling the truth, and entered into the covenant. And the people were pretty upset with, with the leaders of Israel at that time. Uh, anyway, the children of Israel, it says here in verse 2, had sworn protection to them. So about 400 years earlier, this covenant between the Jews and the Gibeonites took place, and this treaty guaranteed their protection, but Saul would have none of it. Saul disagreed with whatever interfered with his own interests, and he had no problem using God's name to try to justify his wicked behavior. He did this all the time. Uh, he was, a, again, a homicidal opportunist, uh, and you, you just so in love with himself uh, to the point of killing those who were in his way. Had the kingdom, David as king and the people with him, once being told by God what this was, had they shrugged it off, it would have been a mockery of God's word. And while God was pretty much saying, well, Saul is a done deal, he's not going to, he's non-responsive to the spirit, to the prophets. And uh, so he just sort of let him run within the confines that God had put around him. But now David is a man of God, and God addresses David and says, I need you to clean this mess up. And David is, is going to do this. Uh, that uh, the, the, It was about the honor of the nation, that the people would know that here are a people that keep the word of God. They had a treaty. They broke it. Now what is going to happen? Well, they, they're going to, to address it. Uh, of course, not all kings were good as David. Most of them were nowhere near as good as David. Uh, but uh, God could not bless them while this unfinished business was uh, there in front of everybody. Imagine if the Allies uh, shrugged off the war crimes of the Nuremberg 22, or even in, in Japan, the, the, the horrible war crimes that were committed by Tojo and those under him. Uh, it was not just dismissed, though, of course, they didn't get what they deserved in every case. Even in the Iraq War, they were hanging people after the war. One guy's head popped off. Well, they, we haven't done this in a while. We've got to work on it. When they hung him. Uh, we'll add, when they're going to hang the, the guilty party, but again, in the Old Testament, when it's hanged, it's likely impaling. Not just, uh, not we would think of maybe crucifixion, uh, but that doesn't come till really later. Um, Anyway, this was retributive justice. Um, the people, it had to be dealt with. And God used the famine to stir the people up. I, I think, you know, in, in studying this chapter, you, you read through it and you're glad to get through it. And you, but there's, you know, you, you have to give time to the word for it to speak to you, to say something. And, and hopefully, as we go through it, Something will stick out and stick with us. Uh, I, I, for instance, when we get to Rizpah, I, I think about her as a Bible character from time to time because the story is, is that um, intense. Well, anyway, Saul, his home is in Gibeah, just three miles from where the Gibeonites uh, are. It is in Benjamin's territory, Saul being a Benjamite allotted land for them. And so he likely had resentment that they were uh, in Benjamin's territory. He probably would not have moved against them if they were in Judah's territory or someone, Dan, or anybody else. But, you know, Saul, in his 
arrogant pride. He took it personal, and he looked to see what was in it for him. In fact, Gibeah, uh, where Saul was born and lived, was known as uh, <clears throat> his, his grandfather was known as the father of Gibeon, and often the writers would say Gibeah of Saul. So there, the, this was uh, a place where these, where this judgment's going to take place. It's it's in Saul's hometown amongst his people, even though the Gibeonites uh, they live a few miles away, uh, you know, just a, maybe four miles or so from where Saul's hometown is. Uh, the term, this bloodthirsty house or house of bloodshed, it indicates that, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Saul, his descendants were active. Uh, they took an active role in, in the slaughter of and persecution of the Gibeonites. And uh, going back 400 years, the Israelites destroyed the cities of Jericho and Ai, the Gibeonites you know, that's when they said, hey, we better come up with a plan because we're next. And that's when they tricked Joshua and uh, they settled still in that area. And so Saul's birthplace uh, is where all this is going to take place. But Saul, it says at the bottom of verse 2, had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Well, as king, resenting them, his patriotism, Saul's, was for himself, not God. God was a vehicle. It was a smokescreen for everything he did. Um, his zeal for Israel in God's name, and that's about it. His brand of patriotism served him well, nobody else except his cronies. He's like a cult leader. Uh, today's prosperity teachers, you know, they love to, to just get as much money from a congregation as they can get, and they're living way up or high up on the hog while everybody else is still trying to name it and claim it. Uh, this is something that's been throughout history in Christ's name, the Roman Catholicism. You look at her history, the shameful history of the Roman Church. And um, uh, actually, Roman Catholicism is a contradiction. Uh, you, you can't be universal and Roman at the same time. You're either universal or not. But anyway, a minor point that I pointed to. So... Uh, patriotism, uh, as the writer suggests, but we know the story. Paul, uh, Saul's patriotism was subject to self-serving pride, greed for gain in some way in every case. Anyway, verse 3, Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of Yahweh? And so David is looking for a solution, <clears throat> wants to bring the, the honor back to uh, Israel in the eyes <clears throat> of those who have been violated. And that's why he says, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of Yahweh, that you may bless the, that you may bless the church, that you may look at the church, at Christians, and say, well, I may not agree with what they believe, but they are honorable in their behavior. And unfortunately, that is very difficult uh, to, to, to achieve. And one, one among many reasons is Satan targets those who would name Christ as Lord, more so than he does uh, the non-believers. And we're going to see that illustrated in David uh, as we get into the next phase of this chapter. Now looking at verse 3, therefore David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you and with what shall I make atonement that 
you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. Uh, Verse 4, And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David is the one saying, Okay, well, just tell me what you want. We're going to get this fixed. So greed is not motivating them. It's a matter of justice. They, they don't want, I don't want Saul's money. We don't need it. You know, we don't want it. They need it or not, I don't know. But uh, uh, they don't want monetary restitution. They want an eye for an eye, as close as they can get it. He says, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. And that means it's not racial. We're not, we just don't want you know, anybody from any tribe, any Jew. No, this is Saul's house. These are Benjamites. They tried to wipe us out, and that is who has to pay. And so they are limiting their retribution to the house of Saul, the Benjamites. Verse 5, and incidentally, not just the Benjamites, the house of Saul. Uh, then they answered the king. As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. And so there they're they're saying, you know, this was intense persecution against us. It was genocide, ethnic cleansing, uh, purging, whatever you want to say. It was they were targets of, of Saul. And in the ancient times, it was not uncommon to execute uh, family members for the crimes committed by someone else in the family. Uh, We have it, uh, Achan, well, his family was in on it. They knew he did it, and they didn't speak up, and so they suffered. But then Haman, well, his family knew too, but uh, they they were judged along with Haman. And then there were the satraps who who had Daniel put in the lion's den. And when the lions did not eat Daniel... Uh, the, he, the king threw the sat wraps in their family in there, and the lions ate them. So, um, since Saul no longer lives for the Gibeonites to deal with him, they're going to ask for seven of his descendants. Again, they're saying this is a war crime, and this was practiced uh, very much in, in those days. It's a lot more civil, perhaps, the way we go about it now, but it not, not uh, always. War crime and brutalities that go beyond warfare, you know, of just wholesale murder and and not combat. Uh, In the ancient world, it uh, was justifiable revenge. That's what we're looking at, justifiable revenge. Verse 6, we're not, pause there, this is not how we do business as Christians. This is Old Testament times, and uh, this is... um, it involves Jew and Gentile interaction. It's just not amongst the Jews or the Gentiles. And that comes out because the bodies are left to hang, and they're left impaled, whereas the Jewish law would have required them to not stay overnight. But anyway, verse 6, Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before Yahweh in Gibeah of Saul whom Yahweh chose. And the king said, I will give them. So they're saying, we want his descendants, we want to kill him in their hometown, we want to send a message, because that's the purpose of this revenge, to leave us alone in the future. And uh, uh, this uh, 
pretty serious, and we will hang them before Yahweh and Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. So uh, they're executing sentence because they were victims, and they're making this clear. This is just not, uh, you know, it's meaningful to them. And they're not looking for anyone else to do their dirty work. They're going to execute them. Uh, they're going to conduct a public execution, and as I mentioned uh, several times, in Saul's hometown. And he must have really just, uh, you know, be persecuted. They're like, you know, now we have a chance to strike back. And David knew of Saul's disregard for human life. So it wouldn't have been, a, you know, that difficult. It's not a pleasant deal for David, and that will come out in the story also. But he knew it was, Saul was uh, uh, a monster. And he knew their request was justifiable, this law of retaliation at work, which shows up in Leviticus uh, chapter 24. Since the days of Noah, God said, you, you know, if you kill somebody, if you murder somebody, you are to be killed. Not murdered, you are to be killed. If you murder, you are to be killed. It's not murder if you justified. Anyway, Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6. This is when Noah is uh, now off the ark. Uh, he God says to him, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And so the Lord, uh, before there was any, any Jew, and there was no Jews, there was no law of Moses, He's, uh, he puts this high value on life, and he says murder is forbidden. Uh, he continues in verse 6, and the king said, I will give them. Yeah, David's not altogether set free from the customs of, of those days, and uh, again, interacting with Gentiles and the law of retribution. Uh, so they were executed, uh, in, consistent with the customs of those days. Uh, so... You might say, well, I thought that the sons do not take the punishment of the fathers. The father sins, you don't punish the children uh, for it. Well, that's what I mean. These customs and this interaction with the Jews is a little different here. But I also will add, it's very likely that these descendants that are named were participants uh, in uh, the persecution. We don't have a lot of information uh, the, the historical record is absent, uh, but we do have the, the aftermath of, of uh, that slaughter, though, or those slaughters, as the case may be, um, here in this chapter. Verse 7, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of Yahweh's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So we have this contrast now. You see, David keeps an oath. He made a covenant with, uh, for the life of Mephibosheth, and he's keeping it, unlike Saul, who, you know, just would, just would never honor anything that inconvenienced him or made him feel that he looked smaller than what he should, should have been perceived. Anyway, uh, Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson, David's friend, now deceased, Jonathan, his son, he was a handicap from the time he was a little guy and not much chance he had any military 
involvement in any of this. Verse 8, So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michel, also pronounced Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzelli, the Meholathite. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> well, the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, not the same Mephibosheth, and it tells us here that this Mephibosheth has the same name, but is the son of Rizpah, a concubine of Saul, and not the son of Jonathan. So uh, it's just not a contradiction. Um, they were old enough, like, you know, that it seems they were old enough to be part of the massacres. And um, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, uh, and Saul's concubine, chapter 3, points that out. And the five sons of Michelle, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adrael, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. Well, um, the reason why Mahalathite is pointed out, and I'm not saying it again, is uh, that Barzillai was from there. Whereas the Barzillai, that was David's old loyal friend, uh, he was from a Gileadite. And so that's the distinction of the, it's not the same Barzillai that we read about chapters earlier where he said, listen, I'm too old for palace life. I want to die in my homeland. And uh, here, take, take uh, this young man with you instead. This Michelle, uh, she raised her nephews, which they, by marriage they were David's nephews too, who David is committing to, to this capital punishment. And she became the guardian of Mirab, Saul's eldest daughter, David's sister-in-law, when he was... He's still married to Michelle, uh, and uh, because Michelle was childless, and she raises the five these five sons. There may have been other children too, but uh, something must have happened to Mirab, and Michelle stepped up and said, "Well, I don't have any kids. I, I can raise them." And she does, but they're grown men now, and uh, that's what's going on there. Verse nine. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them, hanged them on the hill before Yahweh. So they fell, seven together, all, well, all together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. So there's a time stamp of when this is taking place. It's part of the story, and it gets a little complicated here. So when it says they were delivered it, in, uh, them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hang them on the hill before Yahweh. When it says before Yahweh, they're saying this was not an act of cold-blooded killing or murder. This, again, was retribution. And uh, they fell, all seven together, leaving us to conclude that these descendants of Saul participated in the persecution were put to death in the days of the harvest. That would be the barley harvest, uh, April, um, late March, early April. April, And uh, verse 10, Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, 
took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven, and she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day or the beast of the field by night. So this is pretty gruesome now. Now the story heats up. If, if you've been napping, it would be good to start waking up now. Uh, Rizpah, she's the mother of Armoni and Mephibosheth, not the other five, but evidently she stands vigil over their impaled corpse, this two. She makes a canopy for herself. She finds a, probably a large flat rock, and she makes a lean-to there, and she's getting some... Protection, a shield from the sun, and she's going to uh, chase away any scavengers that uh, would come. And the bodies would hang there, uh, perhaps until the famine was broken. Um, we're not told, so we have to guess and put pieces of this puzzle together. Well, you don't. I, I do. <laughs> you just listen and say, I, I like that or I don't. But... Uh, if, if this was a Jewish uh, act of justice on other Jews, then the bodies would have been taken down. But this is not the case. This is different. And uh, so they're executed technically outside the law as war criminals. From the barley harvest to the early rains poured on them from heaven. Now, the rains would end the famine, which would indicate that Yahweh was satisfied. So there are two views here of how long uh, she kept this vigil up of chasing the scavengers and just the whole gory, grotesque, ghoulish, uh, how this comes out. Because if the animals don't get to feed on the corpses, well, the insects will. And uh, how long before even the scavengers will say, well, there's nothing left of any importance to us. And how long does this go on? Uh, Anyway... Did she stay for the early rains that came ahead of schedule? So we're told it's barley season, it's April. The next rain season in Israel does not come until September. So is she keeping guard for six months? That doesn't sound to me to be the case. Um, However, some very good commentators, at least one, the pulpit commentary, that commentator believes that she remained a six, whole six months. And when we get to verse 8, um, when the, the says that David takes the bones of these men and, mix, uh, and buries them with the bones of Jonathan and Saul, he says, well, how long did it take to get to the bones? Does he mean literal bones? So he got all these questions that come up. As summarized in, in verse 14, where it says that after they did this, the rains came. Well, after they did what? After they were instantly killed? I mean, we don't have the information. So it's not a matter of contradiction. It's a matter of we don't have information. However, that does not take away from the story. God sees everything, and he expects it to be dealt with. There are responsibilities that we have. And uh, what is the king going to do when he hears about this mother out there standing vigil over these uh, dead bodies. Well, that means something to us. Saul would have just, you know, went about his business, but David's not that kind of man. Verse 11, And David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, uh, had done what she had done. So this moves David. He says, what? Man, that's bad. That's, why didn't she just leave it? Leave it alone. 
But as you know, as, as, he, he, so this is going to stir him to say we, we need to properly take care of this and do more. Um, so David is going to have the the bones of Saul and Jonathan exhumed and brought to a proper burial place with the bones of these descendants of Saul. And that just, you know, shines light on David. He's not this petty, vicious man. Uh, Verse 12, Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Beth-Shean, where the Philistines had hung hung them up, after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Jonathan. So if you don't know the story, uh, King Saul and his sons, Jonathan being one of them, were on Mount Gilboa when the Philistines defeated them in in battle and killed them, beheaded Saul, took their bodies back to this ancient city of Bethshan and and hung them over the wall as a trophy to everybody and for everybody on that team. Uh, and then the men of Jabesh-Gilead, because Saul had rescued them early in Saul's reign, they felt uh, it was their duty to, to, uh, take this, to take the bodies, not letting the Philistines know they were doing it. They stole them, a commando mission, um, and they brought them back to their city in Jabesh-Gilead. Well, that's where they stayed until now. And now David is making plans again to exhume and then entomb them, Elsewhere, verse 13, so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And that's the seven men that the Gibeonites had executed. Uh, again, so you, you know, if you get fo- zoom in on, okay, bones, so they must have, by this time, the, the insects must have just devoured them or she gave up. What happened? Well, we don't know, and I don't think we should put too much time in it. Although I tried and I tried and I tried. Uh, what does this guy say? What does that guy say? What does the Hebrew say? What does the Hebrew say here? And so keep going in circles. Uh, anyhow, and you know, and I did this years ago and just came back for more. Verse, verse thirteen. I, I think it is the duty of the of the speaker to exhaust the text as best he can, uh, and not just. Listen to what someone says. Okay, that's it. Just to try to exhaust it. And thus, if, um, if someone were starting the pastorate, you know what a good gift would be? Uh, books. He's going to, you know, one commentary won't do it. Ten commentaries won't do it. He needs a library to uh, accumulate, uh, to, to, to benefit from the accumulation of knowledge over the centuries from many Good men. Rule that out. Rule that in. It's quite a trek. Uh, you should come sit in my office sometimes. Watch me read. It's exciting. It's going to be a, a spectator sport. I'm sure of it. Anyway, uh, back to this. Uh, verse 14. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father, So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. Uh, David properly deals with the crimes of the past. And and that's it. It's summarized. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. 
is he talking about, and if you read enough of the Old Testament, you know sometimes there's these summary verses, and you know they are summary verses because they don't fit the timeline. And is that what's going on here? Uh, so you say, well, why bother to put so much effort into this? Because you only have one gear uh, when it comes to Bible study, and that is, as I mentioned, exhaust it. You don't say, well, this is a section that's really not important, and I'll just skip over it. And I'll save my energy for when I come to meaningful verses like in you know, the New Testament or something. No, it's not the way it goes, not at all. So when you get to Chronicles and you have all these names, well, in the early days you get that work out of, out of the way. And, you, and you, you do kind of look into almost each name to see if there's anything else there. And you, you, end, you end up finding some gems. Um, but it's hard work. And it's supposed to be. What is it? Well, that closes this section. So to summarize it all, they took revenge. They sent a message. Uh, Evidently, the Gibeonites continued to live in the land unmolested after that. And um, Rizpah, you know, she stands out as this mother who assigns herself this gruesome task. It um, stirs the king and then they dispose of their dead. And, and we won't have to go back to that. How old am I now? Let's see. Until, all right. Well, now we come to verse 15. And this is a, now another part of the epilogue. Oh, another thing that happened while David was king. And here it is several wars that take place or battles. Verse 15. When the Philistines were at war again in Israel, David and his servants... With him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. It wasn't that he was a farmer growing faint, it's that he became tired. <laughs> you know, there's not much in this chapter, so I've got to maybe throw in a line or two like that. you got to use a little humor, boy. Anyway, uh, the, the timeline, again, is uncertain. David grew faint. Uh, had the palace life caught up with David at this point, and he's, he's in combat and he just can't keep the pace. You know, um, it's, it's run and fight, run and fight. You, no canteens weren't available, and even if they were, you'd drink it all up pretty quickly if you had a chance. I don't think that was the case. I think this is earlier in his reign. He's still pretty strong, uh, having lived out in En Gedi for all those, uh, that time. I think he is exhausted since he is the primary target and the focus on the battlefield of the Philistine onslaught. So they're throwing everything at David's position like they did with Saul on Mount Gilboa, thinking, boy, we killed David, we've got this. And uh, he's just exhausted from fighting uh, more than anyone else. And uh, this is interesting because, you know, we grow faint in fighting for the Christian life. When there are times in our life, there are seasons in our life, not just one day on the battlefield, where Satan just throws these, this onslaught on us. And we grow faint. And we would uh, often, we could perish. Um, <clears throat> you know, be so diminished in our faith, it would be useless afterward. Afterward, were it not for our Abishai, were it not for some bodyguard, for somebody who keeps an eye on us, uh, sometimes I'm that man, sometimes somebody else is that servant to me. So let's look at verse 16 now. 
then ish ish be binah ish by binah. That's it. Ish by binah. Now, mothers, <laughs> you're looking for a name for that boy, Ishbai Binab. Not as good as the great and noble Osnapper, but it is still good. <laughs> well, then Ishbai Binab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was Bearing a new sword, sought, uh, thought he could kill David. So in this section, uh, four giants, four champions of David against the Philistine champion giants. Now the Hebrew word for giants used here, Rapha, uh, connects to the, the, the Amorites, or, pardon me, the Anakim. And they were known for their size and their strength. And Joshua pushed them out of their villages and their cities and towns. And essentially, ultimately, they, many of them remained in the cities, went back. You know, Joshua would conquer a region and, and everybody would flee who survived. And Joshua would move on to the next campaign and they'd come back. Uh, that's what happened with Jerusalem, which was originally Jabus. And then it would be harder to get them out because they would refortify their positions. Anyhow... Uh, they fled to Gaza and Gath and Ashdod, cities of the Philistines, and they, be, they were, became they assimilated into the Philistine culture, and that's how all the giants were coming from there. There were other giants, but they were in New Jersey, and New Jersey just you know anyway. The weight of whose bronze spear was three hundred shekels, seven and a half pounds apparently. Um, well, you know that's not too bad. You figure, you know, you've got sledgehammers, they're eight-pounders, you have ten-pounders, you have a Monday, a 16-pound hammer that uh, is good for breaking up stuff. So this guy had one of those um, tips that I'm sure he got hounded constantly to renew his warranty on that. (laughs) All sorts of mail. Your warranty is about to expire. Anyhow, (laughs) he was bearing a new sword. Well, actually, it's an unspecified weapon. It says a new thing. Could have been a pitchfork or something for all we knew. No. Or these, you know, golden chopsticks with an extension on them. Uh, it doesn't say. But he has some stuff with him is the point. He's, he's come to fight. He thought he'd kill David. Uh, imagine if you're this guy and you say, boy, if I could kill the killer of Goliath, instant fame. He gets all sorts of, you know... Sneaker contracts and endorsements. He would be a superstar. But uh, at this point, David has not obviously subdued the Philistines. And so they're hurling everything at David's kingdom, thinking they're going to take him out like Saul. Perhaps these were their last counteroffensive because not long after he deals with the Philistines, they're, they're not ever a problem again. He subdues them completely. Verse 17 But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not, uh, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. 
And so there's the hero. There's the person. He, you know, David is fighting for his life. He's exhausted. He's about to be finished off by this giant problem. And there's a man named Zariah. This is, again, the brother of, of Joab, a nephew of David. He's always close to David. He's always loyal to David whenever there is action, whenever there is, was war. His eye is always on David. His ear is always listening to what people are saying to David. Every time this guy shows up, he's, he's just a noble man, even though David you know, was irritated with more so with Joab than him. But he's a true warrior who may maintained this unswerving loyalty to David, especially when it counted most. David gets caught up in sin. Abishai doesn't leave him. Uh, just, you know, where are these people? Where are these type of people that can see the whole thing? Uh, they can see that in, in Abishai's mind, yeah, David's family, that's one thing. But this is the man God put on the throne. And he treated him that way. Um, David, he brought so much light to Israel. He catapulted Israel from the dark ages of Saul into this golden age of the kingdom. Uh, just through his psalms, pretty much, well, not alone, but that was a big Big part played a, a large role because the Psalms taught them. You don't see these guys as say, you know what? What are you going to do tonight? Well, I'm going to go. I'm, I guess I got to finish up Deuteronomy. I really got. I got like five chapters. You don't see that in these men. So, but the songs, you know, the songs he ministered to them, and we have the song Psalms to these day, this day, and this doctrine in them. There's information that is correct about God that can only be given to us from God. Through a man. Um, well, he could have wrote it on stones, but still, you've got to carry them down the mountain. So, uh, in my life, in your life, you may go through a situation where you are cornered by some giant problem, and you can't beat it. And God sends an Abishai and rescues you and does it without shaming you. Uh, David did nothing wrong. We have nothing reason to believe he did any. But even if he did, the mercy of God can overrule the wrongs that we commit. In grace, if we adhere, if we stay with God. It says, and struck the Philistine and killed him. Abishai, just like that, a thorough soldier. He delivers a death blow. And then there is this, then the men of David. So they held their position. They protected the king. Swore to him saying, you shall not go out. I keep reading it that way because that's the interpretive. That's the bottom line. Let me reread this. You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And so a necessary change in royal protocol. Uh, David was the man who showed the way of the kingdom. Who could replace David at this time in their history? It would have been a disaster unless God did some miracle but uh, there was nothing. The resources just were not there. They wouldn't be there till Solomon comes along. And probably not even born at this time. Uh, anyway, the significance of the lamp of Israel. It's his influence that he had over not only the nation, but everybody he met. Remember uh, the Philistine king? Uh, just loved David. Uh, wherever he, even Saul loved David at one point until he felt threatened because Saul loved himself so much more. The list of mighty men that David has attests to this fact that he was a lamp to them. He showed the way. And 
I don't, no other king of the Jews had mighty men listed like David. They had good men around them, but not like David. Not until David had Israel raised up so many gallant men and published their names. Because of his influence. Because of the light, you know, he, 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 you go into a dark room instead of, or you go into a room instead of making it dark, he would make it bright. Right? When everybody was sleeping. No, not kidding. So, heroism is contagious. That's what comes out of that. And even Rizpah, as she stood her vigil, um, you know, her heroism moved David. Don't think that the good things you do are all wasted. In fact, if you just lived your life doing routine good, you would not have a wasted life in the eyes of God. It's not easy to pull that off. It's a routine good life. I'll take that. We tend to all want to be superstars. And uh, it's best to just submit to what... It's, it's best to work the resources... God has given. And that can be very difficult because you, we look over, we see somebody else with more resources and we wonder why God's given it to them. What, you know, not us. And well, if you are a believer of the Lord, you would just submit and trust Him. Verse 18, now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Shebekai the Hushathite killed Saf. Did you know that? Did you? Did you know that before you came in here tonight? Who was one of the sons of the giant? Shibakai, the Hushathite. He killed Saf. I was always wondering who did that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, not only are there wars with the Philistines, there's wars of pronouncing these names. Here is another man who became a mighty man of David. And he's listed in First Chronicles and another reason why we love David so much. <clears throat> and our eyes, again, when David falls with, you know, by killing Uriah, we're not supposed to kill David too in our hearts. That's one of the great lessons of, of the story, that Christians are not to shoot their wounded. If He never became a blasphemer. He never, in all that David's life, he never turned on Yahweh. His, his crimes were carnal, never spiritual, unlike Saul. Anyway, uh, verse 19, again there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where El Hanan, the son of that guy, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Well, that's when they... Now they made the garments on a weaver's beam. Here's another Hebrew giant killer, Elhanan uh, from Bethlehem. Uh, he killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. Uh, Goliath's brother, this one was named uh, Lamai, and we get that from First Chronicles 20. It's a minor omission. It really doesn't say, it says he killed uh, Goliath, the Gittite, and it it is, the Bible self-corrects if there's an omission from a, scri a scribal error. It gets addressed later on, if not through the context, the existing information. And I think God has uh, allowed that on, uh, certainly on purpose. God does everything by purpose. But it, it, it forces the unbeliever to dig or not. 
And if he digs, they'll become a believer. If he does not, he just becomes a judge. I mean, you look at, I was looking at, um, well, just consider evolutionists today. More and more, they're personifying evolution. They're giving it a personality. I've I've been hearing this recently about, uh, for instance, evolution realized that, you know, the tiger needed sharp claws. What do you mean it realized? It's a, a person does things like that. A person applies that logic and some problem-solving steps. So they're really saying, yeah, we agree you have to have a person to create things, but we're not going to give God the satisfaction of any honor. And uh, this is how they treat the Scripture. And, of course, um, things which do appear um, require more than just a, a glance to get to the bottom of it. I was also watching, I'm going through a phase in my life where I'm enjoying these videos on gorillas and chimps. And, uh, oh, is that the city council in Fairfax? <laughs> um, anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, I don't know if you know what's going on up there, how perverted they are. But, man. Well, back to this. I've been with gorillas and chimps. And just reading the, the, you know, sometimes you can just not even watch the video. Just go right to the comments. <laughs> you could just get so much, and you listen to what people think. You know, well, they're ninety-eight. Well, they have ninety-four point six percent of our DNA, and your brains too. Because <laughs> I knew a guy that he he fell overboard and he was swimming to the life raft, but he only went ninety-six point four percent of the way there, and he died. <laughs> My point is. Yeah, I think you get it. And it's just frustrating to hear that the world buys into... So somehow they're saying, you see, we have evolved from chimps and, and apes. They're just like us. And they act like dogs don't show love and, and cats don't show love. So it's kind of frustrating. But here we come, and the whole point that I'm making is a lot of people don't want the Bible to be true. And our, our role is to be able to identify who God is leading us in front of and get them the information. And that's why we sit through verse-by-verse studies and not just do topical. Topicals warm the heart. But verse-by-verse sharpens the sword. You need them both. But you really need a sharp sword. Well, anyhow, um, coming back to this 19th verse, here is Goliath's brother, and he is killed and uh, this is probably decades after David killed Goliath in the Valley of Elah. Verse 20, yet again there was war at Gath, that's a Philistine city, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. Well, this odd man with an even amount of digits, <laughs> I mean, because you only have five, he's got six, that's even, even though it's odd. Uh, surely the six, <laughs> the six digit man, surely the six digit man is going to vanquish the Jews. Verse 21. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, killed him. <laughs> Just like that, right? So David's nephew, certainly inspired by the fact that David was his uncle, the giant killer of Elah, he gets his name up on the marquee. 
uh, you know, just like David, Goliath blasphemed uh, the, the, the Lord and David killed him. Well, Shemia, uh, Jonathan, the son of Shemia, he kills him. So that's headline news. David's nephew kills a six-fingered man or the 24-digit dude. <laughs> Gosh. So where do you get your sandals? Anyway, uh, <laughs> verse 22 These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and the hand of his servants. So here is David from the fields of leading his father's sheep to ruling over the nation. He is the the rudder that steers the nation, kingdom of great men and giant killers. Joab was not the only champion in Israel, and we'll come to that in latter chapters. But I want to take a moment to point out that uh, you know, fear tends to kill every other emotion. It just shuts us down. And we read of these courageous men, and we're challenging our faith. That's why we have these stories. It's not just a historical account for that. You just can read anybody's history. This is the history of people who are supposed to live under the authority of God's word. And when... <clears throat> Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, entered the temple. We are told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. And uh, actually not the entering of the temple, but later. And what, he says so many things in here. He mentions David in first, it's Luke chapter 1. And he talks about God taking care of his people. He says, well, I'm just going to take one verse because we're pretty much out of time. But... Verse 70, well, two verses. Verse 73 and 74. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. He, goes, he talks about all the things God has done for his people so that we could serve him without fear. Because fear kills every other feeling. And that is the work of the devil and something that... We do not want to surrender to. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that uh, lessons are pointed out through your Spirit for us. And if not any particular point, uh, just the routine of sitting under your word and receiving and hearing the things that um, have taken place that you felt were worth recording and preserving. We ask that you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.